you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Song of Solomon chapter four. Uh, let me just say, if you are a guest with us, um, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, we've been preaching through Song of Solomon now, and if you don't know what Song of Solomon is about, uh, let me just tell you, we are about to talk about sex, and um, we do not talk about this every Sunday. And so we just throw it out there. Last Sunday, we had somebody come. Uh, it was their second time visiting, but it was the first time that their grandmother visited with them. And after the service, they came down and, and said, you know, we're, we're here. And um, I said, well, you know, ma'am, I just want you to know, I promise you, we don't talk about sex every Sunday. And she said, oh, I loved it. We're about to have a great lunch. <laughs> so uh, I mean, we're glad you guys are here. Here's what I do want you to know though. Uh, what's really important about this. This is probably the most sexually explicit passage in the Bible. And so I'm gonna do my very best to keep this on the PG-13 level. But there might be times where you feel maybe a little uncomfortable, but I promise, just remember, nobody is gonna feel more uncomfortable than me as I read it, okay? And I'm standing up here. I do wanna say this, so I think that's why this is important. And that is that there are some very real things that God feels and has to say about love and sex. I mean, understand, this is the word of God that he's given to us. And so uh, this is, this is, Solomon instructing and guiding, but he's speaking to us about some very real things. And so the last two sermons have been pretty heavy speaking to our men. Um, so I actually had a few guys say, listen, when are you gonna kind of get off our back a little bit? And, and when are you gonna talk to our, our wives? And so ladies, today's your day, okay? And so let me just say this as we get into it. Uh, we're going to be talking about you know, some biblical womanhood and some things that speak to, to the women today. Here's just what I want to ask you. I know that I'm a man speaking on, uh, toward biblical womanhood. So number one, please give me a lot of grace, okay? You just give me a lot of grace and understand everything I'm saying. I'm doing my very best to preach and to teach what God's word has to say uh, to all of us. Now, uh, there's a, a study done by the National Health and Social Life Council. It's not a Christian study. It was a complete, uh, just worldly study done on, had, I mean, it was the largest ever study on the sex experience of Americans. And it, it asked, everything, what's your religion and, and background and all these things, but there were some really unique, and it's, the study has tons of pages, but let me give you a few things that I thought was interesting. This is from a non-Christian perspective, okay? This is what they have to say. And so listen to this. Let me, these are kind of four highlights of the study. Number one, it said that sexually active singles had the most sexual problems and are the least sexually satisfied. Hear me. They're saying that people who are not believing God's word and says, you know what? We just, I don't believe that God's way is the best way. So we're not gonna have, we're not, I'm not gonna wait till I'm married. I'm just a sexually active single, which statistics tell us over 60% of Christians who are in a dating relationship, they talk about having sex before they're married. Now that's 60%. I think about 20% of those are lying. I think it's probably somewhere between 75 and 80%. The other 20% are like, I, I, you know what? I can't even tell the truth on this test. I don't care. Somehow my mama will find out. And so you just, you don't talk about it. But here's what it's telling you. This was just people being honest. They are saying they are the least sexually satisfied people on the planet. Those who are trying to do it their own way. Now listen to this. Men who had the most liberal attitudes towards sex, meaning 
open relationships, pornography, whatever. The, most, the more liberal their view towards sex and who they have sex with, here's what it says, that those men are 75% more likely to not sexually satisfy their partner. So the, the more liberal and open-minded the man is when it comes to not honoring God's word is a 75% chance that they're in a relationship with their partner is not happy sexually. Now, listen to this. Married people, according to the study, married people are the most sexually satisfied people on the planet. Married couples. I know the world tries to push this whole idea, well, once you get married, like that's it, no more. It's just not true. It's just not reality. Uh, it might be reality for some who are here today, and we're gonna talk about that today, but it's not reality overall. Now, hear this out. I thought this was interesting. This was another one that stood out. The most sexually satisfied demographic by age groups are those between the ages of 50 and 59. Just gonna leave that out there. Out of all the faiths, all religious preferences and things that people put out there, it says that those who are conservative uh, Protestant women enjoyed sex the most. Matter of fact, they were 5% higher than Roman Catholics and 10% higher than non-religious by their point system. It, that's a significant jump. Okay, and so uh, Dr. Aiken, who is sharing some of these results said, so what that means is the best sexual decision you can ever make in your life is to put your faith and trust in Jesus, marry a conservative Christian woman and continue to be married into your 50s and it'll be unbelievable. And so uh, just kind of make it up to that. And that moves us right into the passage in chapter, verse eight, chapter four. Now, uh, remember he is starting at her eyes and he begins to kiss her lips and he's working his way down and that's where we are in verse eight, okay? And so here he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now, as we're walking through this passage, it's kind of out of place. I mean, this is on their honeymoon. We've seen they're married and, and now they're in their honeymoon night. And, and in the midst of this, there's like these two verses that are kind of like, hey, I'm gonna take you to the mountains and I'm gonna keep you safe from leopards. It's gonna be amazing. And you're like, what's going on here? Like what's happening? Now, as uh, there's two primary thoughts on, on what's happening here in verse eight and verse nine. The first one is, is that maybe she's timid. It's their honeymoon night. She's a little nervous. And so he's, he's assuring her. He's, he's reminding her like, I love you and I'm with you. Come with me on the journey of life. We're gonna walk together. It's gonna be great. And I'm gonna keep you safe from anything that, that's gonna come our way in life. The second one is that he's actually saying, hey, I'm gonna bring you to a, a sexual climax. I'm gonna bring you to like a sexual mountaintop. And, and some people would say, well, that kind of seems to make more sense, but I don't think so. I think what he's actually saying is in the midst of, of their honeymoon night, he's saying, look, I love you and I'm gonna comfort you. I'm with you, all right? I'm gonna bring assurance to you. And the reason I think that is because look what happens in verse nine. He says, you have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with only one glance of your eyes. He now goes back to reassuring her heart. He affirms her. 
he goes back to reminding her that I love you. Now, remember, men, we talked about last week that for a lot of men, you think about it like it's a playbook. You think about it like running sports. This move, this thing worked last time, so I'm gonna go back to running that. I, this got past her defense and I scored, so I'm gonna do that same thing. You can ring Song of Solomon and think, oh, this is like a playbook, or like a how-to. That's not it. It's not at all. And so if you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this move. And then in the middle of it, I'm gonna talk about us taking a trip to the mountains. It's probably not gonna be good, especially if you tell her that her hair looks like a bunch of wild goats. It, I mean, it's not gonna work out that way. But here is what he's doing. Remember, this is poetry. So in, in the Hebrew language, this, it would all rhyme. And I think he's doing that on purpose. I think Song of Solomon is taking time to, to map out what he wants to say, but then he's also doing it in a very poetic, beautiful way because here's what he wants us to see. It's relational. This is a man who loves his wife and a wife who now loves her husband and together in the midst of this sexual experience, he's saying, I love you and I know you might be timid, but I'm gonna protect you and I'm gonna keep you safe and, and I love you, you are, you're my beautiful. And so he affirms her and it's poetry. And that's a good reminder to us as men is it's not just about, let's just go do this act, but it's, it's to love and it's to share and it's to encourage. Now there's another thing that's interesting here and a lot of people have commented on on, uh, kind of waiting to get to this point. He starts using this language and he's gonna repeat it over and over. He says, my sister, my bride. And you're like, all right, that's kind of a weird place in the middle of honeymoon night to say, you're my sister, uh, you're my bride. The word sister here was a term of endearment that was talking about their spiritual heritage before they're married. So what he is doing is now he's saying, hey, not only do I love you physically, because the whole passage is about this physical intimacy, but now he's also reminding her, I've looked into your eyes, I love you, I care for you, I'm gonna protect you, my sister. He is now bringing God into the bedroom. He's saying, this is not just about having sex, this is worship, this is love, and this is care, and, and I, you are my sister in Christ, and we're following God, doing it God's way, and as a result, it is very Good. Now, I'm giving you the PG-13 version because as he moves in, I want you to kind of look at some of the wording. He says, verse 10, how delightful your caresses are. My sister, my bride, he repeats it. Your caresses are much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Now, some of yours doesn't say caresses. Some of yours says love. And the word love there can literally mean a caress or fondle. So he's saying in the midst of us touching one another, I want you to know that I love you. I care for you. So he's saying how delightful is your touch to me? How delightful is your caress and your care for me? And it's better than wine. Think about it. Why would it be better than wine? You can have too much wine, but he's saying I might, I might be able to have too much wine, but I can't have too much of your love. It's better than wine. It is more intoxicating. It is, I care about that more. Now he moves into verse 11. He says, your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. It's pretty self-explanatory. He's describing a French kiss a few thousand years before France is there. He's like, hey, this is, I'm kissing you. I love you. Uh, and, and so they're, they're kind of moving into this. Now, verse 12. Now the, 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 the text changes here in a, a really intense version. That's why for a lot of your Bibles, there's a gap between 11 and 12. And they want you to see 
the intensity that's changing. Remember, he's moving down, he's kissing her and he's caring and now they're holding and they're touching and now it gets into verse 12 and he says, once again, he starts it. My sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. Now, you're like, all right, why are we talking about gardens here? I mean, in the midst of them, like, what's happening? He's using poetry to explain this woman allowing him into her garden. Think about it like this. In their culture, they didn't have like all the water that we did. They didn't have all like, we, you can just have a garden and you can just walk in. In their culture, they didn't have that. It was hard to grow plants and, and sweet smelling plants. And so what they would do is they would build walls around gardens and that, then they would water that garden to keep it alive. Understand it would rain like once a year sometimes there. And sometimes if it didn't rain that one time that year, they would, they would be in drought conditions where it was tough to live and survive. And so keeping a garden thriving and, and growing, man, it was a big deal. And here's another reason it was a big deal because gardens were life-giving. I mean, if you're in a barren land where there's not a lot of things growing, there's not a lot of life, having a place to go to, to be silent and to be still and to enjoy the goodness of God. So what he is saying and what, what they're talking about is, hey, this is like a place of rest and it's guarded multiple times. She's gonna bring it back three times. My sister, Robert, you're a lot garden, a lot garden and a sealed spring. Ultimately, she's saying, he's saying, you're a virgin. You have protected this sacred space and you've not allowed anybody into this. And then he moves into verse 13. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates. Now, some of yours doesn't say branches. It says thighs. It's talking about her legs. And he says, your legs are, are like a branches of paradise or pomegranates with choicest fruits, henna with nard. Now, when we read this, it's really hard to understand what henna and nard is. Because everybody out there, you're thinking of lard right now. You're, you're, it's like so close. In America, you're like, oh yeah, I know that. Like, you know, I've heard people cooking with lard. Nope, no, nope, not that. Uh, nard was like the most expensive perfume you could buy. Matter of fact, it was so expensive that most people could not obtain it. Most people couldn't get it. And he's saying that what you're giving me in your love and your virginity and what you're giving me sexually and who you are, it's better than the most expensive perfume that people can't even get. It is the most precious thing that I have. It, it, notice it's, it's hidden, uh, it's protected, it, it's been shut off and nobody has been allowed there. Verse four, 14, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the best spices. You are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. Now, let me just stop here. It is my job as a pastor to preach the whole counsel of God. It's my job to take the word of God, to put it on a silver platter and give it to you for you to understand it. So verses 14 through 16, you just read that and understand if what you are thinking it is saying, that is what it means, okay? So I'm just gonna read it. Here we go. Verse 16, she speaks, awaken north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to this garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now listen to me. She is saying, he's saying, we're ready to have sex. And now she is saying, I'm giving you this invitation. I'm giving you this gift. I'm giving you myself, mind and body and soul. What do you think his response is to that? Okay. 
I mean, let's go. She's saying, here it is. Notice it's not just him saying, I'm gonna pursue this. This is her saying, I'm giving you this. Now look in chapter five, verse one. I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. Now we get to this, these two lines right behind this. And some of yours probably says something like, a crowd or friends or people are speaking or a narrator. It says, eat friends, drink, be intoxicated with caresses or love. I don't think that's like a narrator of friends like cheering them on. I don't think that's what's happening at all. Uh, and so if for people who put that in there, I, I disagree with them. I think this is actually God. I think the narrator here is actually God. It's God looking into a man and a woman who love one another, who love God and are coming together and have honored the Lord. And God is saying, this is how it's supposed to be. Enjoy this. This is a gift that I've created and I've given to you and it is good. So this is God saying, man, this is, this is a good thing. Like do this and do it often. We're gonna find out later on. So how can I give you some instruction? How can we speak to this? Now, I get it. We've read through it and you're like, man, hopefully the most uncomfortable part is over. Well, it's not, so let's go, okay? Here we go. I wanna give you a few things that you can notice. The first one is I want you to notice her inner beauty. And I think this is important. I know every week we have brought up this inner beauty section, but it's important because he keeps going back to it. You would think like this sexual scene, the world is just makes it all about flesh and passion. And, but you know what he keeps going back to? He keeps looking back at her and says, you are beautiful to me. I've looked in, into your eyes. Now, ladies, there is way more pressure on women to appear a certain way than on men. Image to women is, it is everything. And the image changes. Our culture says, this is what the image should look like. This is the weight. This is the hair color. This is the skin tone. Like, you know, pale is in now and then tan is in. And then it's, it's like all this craziness. So you're like trying to find out what's the image that is good. And, and so you have all this pressure on you. 80 to 90% of eating disorders are in women. Have you ever known, like, why is it so rare in men? Because women have all this pressure put on you. And what I want you to notice that in the midst of this sexual experience in verses eight, nine, he starts off and he's reminding her, man, I'm attracted to who you are. I love you. You are beautiful to me. Your eyes captivate me. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna take care of you. And he brings assurance. It's not that physical beauty is bad. As a matter of fact, if you came to me and said, hey, hey pastor, would you marry us? And I said, okay, let's sit down, let's talk. We start our premarital counseling. And I'm like, well, tell me how, how you guys started dating. How, and, and then I wanna hear kind of how y'all are attracted to each other. And if y'all just looked at us and you laughed and said, we're not attracted to each other at all. I'm like, oh, like, huh? Yeah, no, there's no physical attraction whatsoever. I'm like, well, you got a major problem then. Something ain't right. That's not how God, he created us to have attraction to one another. We talked about that in the first sermon. So attraction is good, it's just not God. It's not ultimate. And this world wants to make it the ultimate. Now he's saying, I am attracted to you. This whole section, he's talking about how physically he's in love with who she is and he wants her, but he's reminding us that inner beauty is far more important. Matter of fact, I would tell you that I think that sex flows out of this heart captivation that comes from soul beauty. You looking at one another's soul and seeing inner beauty and, and you're in love with who one another is and then sex flows out of that. Uh, one time on Mother's Day, I preached uh, from Proverbs 31 and I had all these moms get mad at me. 
And I couldn't figure out why. And they're like, you don't understand. I'll never measure up to Proverbs 31 woman. She's like perfect. And, and so, but the problem is as a woman, you go through Proverbs 31 and you got like this checklist. Do I do this? Do I do this? Do I do this? I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. And I don't measure up to that. And you're missing it. Proverbs 31 is about this woman who is showing inner soul beauty. It's not about what she's doing. It's more about why she does what she does. It, your value is not in what you do. It's in this beauty that flows from the inside. Matter of fact, I would tell you in Proverbs 31, there's three characteristics that flow out of who she is. The first one, she has a, is a good reputation. Over and over and over, it talks about her reputation being, being good. She has this willingness to serve her family, this willingness to, to serve, and, and people take notice of that. Solomon has taken notice of that in her Man, you have this good reputation. You have friends that are with you and, and you love, you have a good reputation. Secondly, is this Proverbs 31 shows this ambition. It's this is a woman that is running hard. I'm ambitious. I wanna take care of my family. I'm running hard after the things of God. Think about how Proverbs 31 ends. Beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Her inner beauty is that she fears God. She is running after God. The third one is leadership. She's influencing, she's using what she has, what she can do to influence people around her. She's like, hey, I think I can sell things in purple. Let's like go do that. I'll go get up in the morning and sell something. If I can do that, I will do that because she wants to use her influence and, and, and do what she can. I'll tell you as a pastor, I don't know, there's a lot of things that, that, that get under my skin when I hear people talk about God or the church because it's so misunderstood, but there's one that absolutely drives me crazy. And that is when I hear the world, or maybe you're here today and you're just trying to figure God out and you say things like this. Well, I tell you what, man, the, the church is just chauvinistic. It's male-led and women don't have a place and women rights, women freedom. And, and, and let me tell you why, when it comes to God and sexuality and marriage, why it drives me crazy. Because the church is designed to run full speed when men and women run together. We run best in the kingdom of God as his church when we are all men and women running to God full speed, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, men and women. That's the question. Is she running full speed after the things of God? Men, if you're looking for a girl, that's what you should be asking. Is she running after Jesus passionately? Let me ask you this. When it comes to thinking about all that God has done in the life of our church, what would happen if we removed all the women from our church at Shirley Hills? I can tell you a few things would happen right now, right immediately. Man, there would be no boxes down here. All the men would just be dumping the stuff inside the box right up front. There'd be no rubber bands around those boxes to hold them together and they wouldn't be in night in these places. We just have it all dumped up here. Can I tell you what would happen if we just said, oh, women don't have a place in the church? Man, let me tell you what would happen. We would lose ton of ministry leaders and missionaries. We would lose unbelievable assistants in our office that get work done and get things accomplished that, that we are not gifted and skilled in. We would leave D group leaders and influencers. We would impact moms and homes and children and ministries and it would all be a mess. God, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that says that the church is not a place for women and, and that is it's just not biblical. And it's the same with our home. Man, you're finding this is a husband and a wife who love one another and they're running together in her inner beauty. And so they're going after it. They're, they're pursuing the Lord. And so if we didn't have women, we would be in trouble. 
The church is never meant to be men leading the church and women not involved and not having a place, just like the home. So much has been accomplished in the kingdom of God by women who are running full speed after Jesus. You don't let anybody tell you, look, you don't need a man. You need Jesus. And if you get Jesus, then when God gives you a man, it's a gift. And that's the same for men. You don't need a woman. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I wish everybody was like me, but everybody's not gonna have the gift of singleness. So as a result, get married. But it is not our savior. And that's the problem. We make it that way. So here's the question that I would have for you as ladies. Are you spending more time on physical beauty or spiritual beauty? Are you feeling the weight of influence to find your value and who you are by spending more time to make yourself look physically beautiful than you are on your inner beauty and who God's made you to be and you running after Jesus full steam? Number two, I want you to see that their love is expressed in servanthood. Their love is expressed in servanthood. Notice that their love is to one another. I hear it all the time that marriage is 50-50 and that can't be further from the truth. It is 100% the man, 100% loving his wife, and it is her 100% loving her husband. It's not, we'll meet you in the middle. It's, I'm gonna give everything I've got. It takes 100% for us to, for marriages to honor and, and follow God. And they're doing this. For a woman, sex is, is tenderness and care and intimacy. For a man, it is openness and desire and a willingness. And she's saying, hey, I'm willing. I want you to come into the garden. I'm presenting myself to you. And he is saying, I love you and I care for you. And he's given communication and emotions and feelings. They are both being selfless. What I want you to notice here is that they're both enjoying it. They're both making a sexual investment into each other. Nine times in this passage, nine times in this book, he refers to her as his. He, he says, you are mine. And some of you are like, oh, there it goes again. A man saying, oh, I own you. No, it's not domineering way because you know what happens right behind that. She says, and I'm yours and you are mine. They're willingly 100% giving each other to each other. They're freely giving herself to him. So what's happened is now sexually, they have devoted to meeting the needs of each other. This becomes a problem in married relationships when sex, when each spouse looks after their own interest. When men, you just say, well, I just want sex from her. So the only time you do anything is when you want sex. From the woman, when you say, well, I tell you what, he's not gonna have sex until I'm happy and connected. And so that's just how that's gonna be. And so what happens, you start to stand up for your rights. Listen to how one, one uh, author wrote it. The husband is seeking to satisfy his wife. She is seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights, but to serve one another in bed and out. Solomon has learned what his wife loves, what turns her on, what stimulates her, what makes her happy. And she, as a result, gives unrestricted access. My body is hers and her body is mine. This is not just an Old Testament passage. This is also New Testament. First Corinthians 13, I think it's verse five, says that love doesn't demand. Love is not demanding. Love is not forceful. So it's not like some men don't go like memorize a verse and be like, oh, by the way, because the verse I'm about to share with you, you might wanna add to your, your scripture memory list. In 1 Corinthians, he says in chapter seven that uh, if you just read it, he, he talks about how uh, as in married couples, we should, in, in being married, that you should not go without having sex for certain seasons. He literally assumes that it's the opposite way. It's not like, hey, y'all should be having more sex. He's like, hey, 
there's only a few reasons to take a break from having sex. If you are waiting for everything to be perfect, then you're never gonna have sex. Think about it like this, ladies. If you're saying something like this to your husband, hey, I tell you what, I will reward you with sex when you get everything right. You might be waiting, well, a long time. We're not perfect. Husbands, men are not perfect. Think about it like this. What if God only responded to us in that way? Remember, marriage is to point to God. So what if God said this? Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your prayers and I'll reward you when you get everything right and when you're perfect. Then I'll be willingness to pour out my blessings upon you. What if God did that? It's not that way. We love Jesus most when we are servants to others, even sometimes sacrificially. And so depriving one another of sex to teach them, it will not work. So listen to me, if your mindset ladies are, I tell you what, I'm gonna change my husband one way or another. And if he don't change, now there are certain areas that I think people would understand, but in those areas, you might need counseling and go get that counseling, but don't use that as an excuse. It's real change, here's the thing. Real change doesn't happen most of the time to justice or punishment. Most of the time, real change flows out of grace. It flows out of grace, think about it. Think about for you, what, what, when Jesus looks at us and he says, I tell you what, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take the punishment you deserve and I'm gonna take it upon myself. I'm gonna take the beating that you deserve and I'm gonna take the beating for you and I'm gonna give you my love, not because you deserve it, because I'm sacrificing myself in that way. And in the same way, we ought to think that way and he talks about it. Now, I get it, justice punishes, but grace, it brings transformation. Fear does not lead to your husband changing into who you want him to be, but your grace, your love will absolutely bring transformation into your husband. I will tell you, after uh, coming on uh, eight, nine years of marriage, there's no doubt that God used Stacy to have a hand in me becoming the man that I'm gonna be. And for me to be the man that God wants to be, it will be a direct correlation to how God uses my wife. There's so many things that would have never happened in my life spiritually if God did not bring Stacy into my life to see it and to walk through those things. So as we're thinking through marriage, I also understand though, men, uh, that sometimes you're gonna be told no because men, we have the worst absolute timing ever. Sometimes your timing's just terrible. Do you know the number one excuse or number one reason that women give for not saying yes to sex? Number one, she has a headache. The number one reason, the number one reason. All the ladies are like, really? Don't use that one. It's the number one reason. And here's the deal. Sometimes the headache's probably for real, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes men, it's our timing. So one guy said, hey, I, I adopted what we call a 24 hour, hour rule. If the timing is bad, then, then just communicate. I tell you what, but we'll have sex within the next 24 hours and we will make the timing Good, we'll make it right. Now, another question I get asked a lot is what is permissible in sex? As a Christian, as a Christ follower, like what is, what is okay? So I wanna briefly talk about it. As long as it's not demeaning or immoral and you and your wife are on the same page, God's word is open to it. He tells that our bed is, the way to bed is, is undefiled. So what does that mean? If you don't like certain things, then there might be a time where one person might push certain things that they're saying, you know what, I will sacrifice in this way. Or as a husband or another person that's more willing, you might say, I will never demand or push things that you aren't comfortable in serving my spouse. Let me give you two things that are absolutes. Two things that are absolutes. It should never involve pornography. 
ever. One of the more growing trends is that because people are addicted to pornography, they need pornography. And so as a result, they bring pornography into their bedroom and make the excuse, well, this actually helps us out. No, it doesn't. And if you need pornography for you, you, if you have to look at someone else for you to be stimulated in your marriage bed, then you need to pursue what it takes to heal in your heart. And you need to pursue what it takes to get things right in that area. It never includes pornography. And secondly, it never includes other people. It never includes other people. He says our wedding, the wedding bed is undefiled, meaning that nothing from the outside comes in. And that moves us into step number three, point number three. And that is there's power. There is power in boundaries. Man, there's power in boundaries. Notice over and over, it brings up three times in the one verse that this is locked, that this is shut down, that you have protected this. So let's talk about a little, a little bit about healthy boundaries. My whole life, uh, when it came to, to being of, of age, I heard just don't have sex. I heard no, 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 no. But no one ever really talked about why. Like why no, like why not? Why does God want sex to be between only a, a husband and a wife? And what I want you to see here is that what, what's happening is she's saying, hey, I've protected the thing that is most valuable to me, my love, my heart, my mind, my soul toward you. And so she's saying, I'm a virgin and, and he's a virgin. And so here they are, this lock garden, now they're coming together. And so he's saying, I can have too much wine, but I can't have too much of your love. They have protected this. It's a lock garden. Sex before marriage is enjoying the taste of oneness, but without oneness. Matter of fact, I, I told y'all, I often turn to C.S. Lewis in moments of trying to need clarity on certain things. And uh, he was talking about waiting. And why is it worth waiting to have sex till you're married? Like, why is that good or profitable? Listen to this. He says, when a guy wants to have sex with you before marriage, it's how a bulimic person treats food. They enjoy food, but they don't want the food to go into their body. So after tasting it, they throw up. A man who has sex with you before marriage is saying, I want to taste the oneness, but I don't actually want to have oneness. If I wanted oneness with you, then we would be married. Now, I want you to have that mental picture for just a second. Someone who's bulimic says, you know what? I, don't, I like the way that food tastes, but I don't want those polysaturated fats or I don't want that sugar. I don't want that stuff into my body because it, I, it doesn't uh, give me the results that I want. And so I wanna enjoy the taste of it. And then I'm gonna throw it up because I don't want all of it. And, and somebody that is saying, hey, I wanna have sex with you before you're married is saying, I want the taste of oneness, but I don't want the mind and the body and the soul part. There's an author named Henry Cloud who wrote the book Boundaries and Dating. He said this, let me just quickly give you, I'll send you my sermon notes if you want it. So just email me, jacob at shirleyhills.org, uh, ryan at shirleyhills.org, and we'll just give you the notes because this is gonna be too fast for you to write down. He gives you six reasons, he says, that it could be, it's hurtful to have sex before you're married, harmful. He says this, number one, you are splitting someone's soul and body. You're, you're engaging in oneness with their body, but not with their soul. Secondly, it's demeaning a precious aspect of somebody and turning it into a plaything for your enjoyment. Number three, he says not allowing love, it doesn't allow love to properly form. You shortcut love and deep conversations and things that you need to have. Number four, it's coming between that person and God. I mean, think about it. You're saying that my desire uh, to have sexual relationship is more important than their desire to be right with God. Number five, you are coming between them and someone else who might really care for them and value them. 
Man, there might be somebody who wants to love them mind, body, and soul, but you just want the body part. So you're, you're blocking their ability to be fully loved by somebody else because you just want one aspect of this. Number six, you are setting them up for heartbreak and devastation if you break up with them and you're not married. And let me just add to that, if I was gonna add a seven, even if you do marry that person, you are bringing in problems and complications into your marriage because of the boundaries that you crossed beforehand. You are gonna have to have conversations that God didn't intend for you to have to have. And so what does this mean? Wait. It's that simple. Wait. You think you're missing out on something, but you're not. Was it one of the absolute hardest things that I ever had to do in my life? Yes. Did I have to make sure Stacy's dad never left the house while we were there? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Some of you students, you think your parents or someone is trying to keep you from missing out on something. And we're not. Hear me for just a second. Hear my heart. It's the same thing I'm gonna tell my boy and it's the same thing I'm gonna tell my girl. And it's the same thing I want everyone to hear me. I don't want you to miss out on anything. I want it to be the most amazing. Matter of fact, one day either myself or, or Pastor Jeff will be standing up here hopefully to see you get married. And what we want to be able to do is shout it and, and praise the Lord that you get to go and be married and to be safe and to be secure and to grow with somebody and to enjoy all the goodness of sex that God has for you. You've already found out that Christians have the best sex. And so we want you to have the most enjoyable sex life possible. And God does, he made it. And so it really comes down to, do you trust God's way over what you think is the best? And here's what I'm here to tell you. And this is what we're hitting, hearing in this passage. It is that good. And it is worth waiting for. Ladies, guys, wait for it, fight for it. Number four, number four. And that is, I want, to see, want you to see this love, it points us to a truer love. I mean, this love points us to a true love. You see, he's focusing on, on real love, not just a fling, not just passion, not just a one night stand, but this, this true, intimate, loving relationship that they're having. And in this, I want you to see that it's to point us to a greater love. Notice that he keeps bringing up over and over and over, you're my sister and you're my bride. You're my sister and you're my bride. Why is he doing that? I mean, because it's not just once. He repeats it and he repeats it almost at every section. He's like, yep, I'm about to talk about her thighs. So let me remind you, my sister and my bride. It's like every point he brings that up because first and foremost, before she was ever his bride, she was God's. They were brother and sister in God before they were uh, husband and wife. And he's, he's, he's reminding us of the most important thing. That sexual satisfaction and marital satisfaction can only bring you so far. God is the ultimate. Ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction will always be found in the Lord. See, your satisfaction is not how good your kids are. It's not how if your kids are doing right or if they're on the same reading pace as other kids. Your satisfaction is not if your home looks like Joanna Gaines or if your kids are eating pure organic puree that you made for them at two in the morning because you need to be all organic. Your, your joy is not if you breastfed and you're better than someone else who you know uh, is formula. That's not satisfaction. That's not joy. All of those things, your value in who you are as a woman and as a man, it is found in God. It is in sonship and in being a daughter of the king. If that's not there, then you will look to all these other sources to bring joy. Man, what are we teaching our young ladies? I hope what we're teaching our young ladies is to fear the Lord. Fear God, fear him and, and let your fear of God fuel everything else that you do. 
Ask yourself this question, just write it down right now. Where is my identity found? How do I see myself? He saw her first and he's telling her, I first see you as a sister before I see you as my wife. I'm gonna treat you as a daughter of the king this way before I treat you a certain way as my bride. You see, ladies, you were not created for man. You were created for the man. And there's a big difference. Men, you were not created for woman. You were created for God. Now, I wanna take a moment and I wanna talk about some of you here as we close. Some of you are here and you're sexually scarred. As I talk about some of this, it's hard. On one hand, you're like, man, I wish, I wish maybe we wouldn't like harp on saving ourselves for marriage because we know that some 60 to 80% of students are, are having sex before they're married and that's just gonna make people feel bad. So on one hand, I understand. So I'm gonna talk to you guys in just a second. For others though, the reason we wanna value it is because God's word does. So we're gonna teach it because it's good, it's profitable. I mean, look, if I can save you hurt and pain and suffering and give you goodness, I'm going to. But on the other end, some of you, I wanna talk to you. Some of you who have, you're experiencing right now the pain of sexual scarring. Some of you are here and you were robbed of the joy of this because you've experienced rape. You've experienced pain. You had somebody, a family member, somebody hurt you uh, and you've gone through things. And so for you, you're trying to figure out how do I walk through this? Others, you've had sex before you're married and you've lived a very open lifestyle and it's brought pain and suffering. So how do we help you? How do I, I speak to where you are? Let me give you a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter six. He, he, he goes to this list of all these sexual immoralities and he, he, he puts them all in there. And so, matter of fact, he goes on to say in that passage that, man, there was a, a people in the church, they were sleeping with their mom. So you think, man, it's worse now than it's ever been. No, sexual sin has always been bad. All the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's always been bad. And so how do you handle this? How do we do it? Well, here's what he says. Are you ready? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, when you commit sexual immorality, it makes you feel dirty. It makes you feel insecure. It makes you have this like low self-esteem and Satan attacks you in all those ways. But what he just said is that Jesus saw all the sexual immorality that we would ever commit. I mean, let's be honest. Jesus said that if you look at a woman lustfully, it's as if you've committed adultery. So in, in every person here, every sinner in this room, we all fall short of the glory of God, do we not? So how do we deal with sexual scarring? Some of you students, you're like, I've already made mistakes that I can't get back. What do I do? You go to Jesus where Jesus said, I have washed you. If you have a relationship with Christ, he says you've been sanctified. You've been bought from that sinful place. You're not living in that sinful place anymore. You're over here with me. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, and now I love this. He says you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus. That means when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your sexual immorality, he sees you as just. Because he took your sexual immorality upon himself and he gave you his righteousness. So listen to me, and I think this is important. This does not give anybody an excuse to go do what you want. It does the opposite. When I see the length that Jesus has gone to make me clean and pure and holy, it wants me to live more. I want, it makes me want to live more pure and holy. 
So hear what I'm about to say. If you are here today, what he is telling you, if you have crossed sexual boundaries that you wish you would not have, he's saying through the blood of Jesus, he can actually make you more pure spiritually than physical virgins on this planet. He will wash you clean, holy, right, just, sanctified, washed by the blood of the lamb. So you don't have to live in, in, as a victim. You know why some of you are here and, and you're beating yourself up. We're walking through the sermon series and you're just beating yourself up because you thought, man, I wish I would have waited. I wish I would have done this. Some of you here, you've been married now and you're like, man, I wish we would have started like this or I wish I wouldn't have done this or I wish I wouldn't have messed this up. And you know why you beat yourself up? It's a form of punishing yourself to make you pay for what you've done wrong. The only problem with that is Jesus said, I've already paid for that. You don't beat yourself up to make yourself feel better. I've already taken your beating to give you my righteousness. So the proper response is not to walk around and sulk and be mad and angry and to beat yourself up. You know the proper response? It is worship. The proper response is for me to fall on my knees and say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not known by my greatest sin. I'm known by my Savior. So some of you are here, man, Satan is trying, this whole sermon series, you're all mad and all, yeah, I can see some of you, you're like, oh man, like, why was you talking about this? And hey, here's the thing, Jesus is saying, I've got you. Just come to me. I've got you. Come to me. Don't let your sexual sin keep you from Jesus. Run to him. Run to him. He wants to forgive you and love you and care for you. Some of you are not enjoying all the goodness that God has for your marriage today because of what Satan is trying to rob you today from what he led you to do in the past. And Jesus said, no, I, I paid for that. Man, forgiven, covered. Man, now go and follow God and, and do right. All things, he says, have become new. So who are we to tell him, hey, Jesus, your payment is not good enough for what I did. I did something so bad, even your blood's not good enough to cover that. What? Who do you think you are? He's the son of God. He shed his blood for you. So you don't walk in the guilt of it. You lay it at the feet of Jesus and you walk in the righteousness of Christ. And you just say, you know what, Lord, today, here we go. Today's the day I will follow Jesus. I'm just gonna follow you in this area and I'm not gonna keep beating myself up or punishing myself. Jesus has taken that for me and now I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna honor you and I wanna live right and I wanna save myself from this point and I wanna be holy and right and true and then I wanna be able to tell him, hey, look, there was a time that I wasn't right but from this point forward, man, Jesus got a hold of my life and from this point, I've saved myself for you. I've I locked the gate, I've shut the gardens and I'm ready to invite you in, but you need to know like I've, I've honored God in this. So let's close uh, with just this thought. Do you know the love of Jesus? Our praise team's gonna come forward and it's really the big question that you've got. Have you come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? If you know Christ, man, then all relationships and love should all point us to love the Father. Where's your marriage at? So let me close as they're coming up with homework, okay? I'll tell you what, we'll have a time of response and I'll give you the homework uh, as we close today in the service. Why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for us. We have a time of response. Man, maybe you'd like to join our church. Our pastors will be front, we'd love for you. Maybe you just wanna come and pray. Our altar is gonna be open. All right, just because you're coming to pray doesn't mean there's sexual sin. We just wanna pray. We just wanna pray. You might, hey, parents, I'll tell you what, it's a great time to come pray for your kids. Great time to come pray for your children. They're under attack. They're under attack, it's a great time to say, Lord Jesus, we want it, babe. It's a great time to pray for our church. 
Man, we want freedom. We want joy. We don't want Satan to hold anything back. Pray with me, Lord, lead us now. Help us to respond to you. God, I pray that we would not fear hard conversations because Jesus, because of you, Lord, you've overcome my greatest mistakes, my greatest fears, my greatest worry. I'm whole whole in you. So God, now would you make us whole? Lord, the places in our heart that we feel like sin is stealing, Lord, I pray that you'd fill it up, strengthen it. Lord, help us, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.